Hello, world. Retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hi, I'm your host, Christy Hornland. And I'm Brad Rayford. Welcome to the Risk Factors Perspectives in IoT podcast. Today, we're speaking to Jason Howard Grau, Managing Director at KPMG US over the fascinating and emerging world of electric vehicles, connected economy of things, and the questions that accompany such rapid evolution. So today we're joined by Jason Hayward Grau out of the KPMG US office. Uh, He is a managing director focused on utility and the energy space that we've got on today to talk to us about the energy industry, some interesting innovations happening, um, as well as some of the security implications that go along. So thanks for joining us today, Jason. Thanks, Christy. Delighted to be here. So before we jump into any of the heavy topics, I do want to start off giving our audience an idea of what your personality might be. So I've got a question for you. It is absolutely anti-Myers-Briggs, so don't look out for any sort of textbook variation of this. Are you ready? No, but we're going to do it anyway, so let's get going. Good, good, good. Uh, all right. If you were to star in one form of car cinema, which one of the three options would you want to be the star of and why? Cars, Pixar original, two, Michael Bay's Transformers, or three, Netflix Drive to Survive? Okay, that's a really, really hard one. It's very revealing. I'm going to know at least 10 things you wish I didn't know about you in the next five minutes. Already, because, you know, for the hidden humor, Cars is great because there's a lot of humor in there that most, and I've had my son at the time and he watched it, didn't see it, and I'm like, I'm giggling away to myself. So there's a little bit of of kind of wry humor in there. Transformers, obviously, big, blow stuff up, have a lot of fun with it. Nicer Cars, to be fair. I haven't seen the third one, so I can't go with the third, so I'm limited to two. Though the third one does sound kind of more up my street. Just, you know, Drive to Survive kind of sounds like my kind of thing. It's, it's F1 focus. I'm surprised that you haven't seen it yet. Time. Time is my friend and he's also my enemy. Um, but if it's F1 focus, then I would probably go with that just by sheer virtue of the fact that I'm probably one of the only people in this audience anyway that's driven a couple of Formula One racetracks. Okay, quick follow-up. Which, which team do you associate with? Well, there is only one. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, I, well, it's interesting. So um, I'm a bit, I was a big McLaren fan for a long time, um, but I'm now much more of a Mercedes fan. So a number of my colleagues, as you probably know, have, uh, have Max Verstappen as their best, best and brightest hope. And we're currently struggling with that debate between you know, the Hamiltons of this world and obviously the Verstappen argument. So it's going to be Red Bull versus Mercedes, I think. Mm, interesting yeah say immediately out of that i was thinking mercedes big type a personality type in there i don't know if that resonates but jason yeah. just just so you know flagging a little bit but i, I appreciate that and, and I'm, <laughs> yes and thankfully i don't drive a mercedes so you know and and in texas um you know we're we're truck folk so i have a proper truck there we go just, just hearing you say in texas we are proper truck folk without it being we're proper truck folk Okay. is a little misleading, Jason. I'm sorry. We are, we are truck folk, but I, and I'm so glad that you've adopted Texas as your home. Um, I, I have a follow-up question to to your your love for formula. 
what do you think of the new DRS protocols and the incentives to get drivers to be closer together? Yeah. Um, well, let's let's put the let's put the fun and frivolity bit to one side for a second. I mean, it is obviously much more exciting. Yeah, DRS is a, is a very interesting mechanism to enable more excitement at the track. But thinking about safety for a second, you know, those cars are hurtling around at 170, 180 miles an hour on fast straights. It is already a challenging thing to be able to maintain them. I've seen some some pretty horrendous accidents in watching Formula One up live, up close and live. I think it's a gimmick at the moment, and I think it's going to have a challenge. Personally, that's my that's my view. I think it's not necessarily going to be in the best interest of the sport, but it's in the best interest of viewing. Make sense? Then what do you think? So to give to give the listeners a, be, a little bit of background who may not be familiar with this new system. Uh, when you talk to race car drivers and you say, like, how far behind a driver should you be? Usually the answer is two seconds. Yeah. Right? That's how close you want to be to the car in front of you. And as you said, at 180 miles an hour. Uh, DRS is a new system. Uh, what they found is as they were encouraging drivers to get closer and closer, they started to see a significant reduction in downforce, meaning the cars became less stable, harder to maneuver, and uh, you weren't able to make passing, uh, passing moves. So they created a system uh, called DRS where on in the turns and certain sections of the turns, if you are within a certain range of the car in front of you, it activates a new wing on your car, then applies additional downforce, and it gives you about a five to eight mile per hour boost when you get into the straightaway. And so you can make a pass around the car in front of you. Now, what I, I, what I think is really fascinating is that this is brand new. And so the drivers are having to adjust their racing strategy in real time. And uh, so there was a race uh, recently that happened where the, the first and second place drivers, they were trying to figure out when is the right time to activate DRS and how close and how far and, and at what points in your, your racing cycle do you want to do that? Because if you pass someone on turn one, they're going to be right behind you on turn two and just take the lead back. Mm-hmm. And so uh, going into one of the last two laps, both drivers slammed on their brakes going into the DRS zone because they didn't want the other, they didn't want the other driver to get it. So they were slowing down into a turn with a whole bunch of other cars right behind them. Yeah. And, uh, it ended up that the, I believe it was the Mercedes driver actually went into the DRS zone slightly behind, but on the side of the Ferrari car and, uh, activated DRS. And when he came out of the final turn was able to blow past and claim the win. So it was a exciting race. I think it's an exciting feature, but like you said, Jason, I don't know about the long-term viability of it. I do like the additional downforce that the cars get just from a safety perspective. That is cool. Uh, you're right. I mean, I, the analogy I probably draw back to it, and you probably don't remember this because it was ages ago, but as, as a child, I watched Formula One and they had the, tur- they had the kind of, they played with turbo engines for a while and turbo engines, you know, were massive, power generators and significantly changed the way that racing was was being planned mapped and operated throughout the entire cycle right so that was around for a couple of years if this one sticks then we'll see but my my kind of cynical view is that it's i know it's it's done to make it more relevant and keep it more exciting and you're right there's a there's a lot of opportunity but there's also a lot of risk with it which sounds awfully like cyber ironically um because the more you do 
the more likely it is that you're actually going to create an unintended consequence, which is where I think that there's going to be a challenge. To your point, I think it was um, Saudi Arabia, the Grand Prix most recently, where they blew by. But you have a significant risk if if everyone suddenly starts slamming on their brakes and you're not you're not using the two-second rule because you think about the amount of time it takes you to think to send that nerve impulse from your brain to your foot to actually press stamp on the brake, you need sufficient time to do that. If you don't have it, you're going to have a massive pileup, and it's already pretty risky as a sport, in my opinion. But it is, it is going to be really interesting to see where it goes. I mean, I think with that, we did a great job looping together both Transformers and F1, so brilliant, beautiful, love it. <laughs> uh, and also one of the points that you brought up, Jason, I think brings us back to kind of the nature of what we do want to talk about. So outside of just your personality, wonderful to learn. I would like to drive in today to some of our conversations specifically around a lot to do with innovation coming out of EV. So focusing on, you know, some of the Biden administration investments, some things like the $5 billion over five years to get the network of EV charging stations up in the U.S., the goal of 50% electric cars being produced by 2030, and again, kind of that social pressure for corporate corporations to really come back around and place priority on ways that we can be more sustainable. I think all of these drivers are uniquely creating kind of an innovation box right now, some sort of kind of incubator really around how exactly we could use EVs, those electric vehicles, and all of their uh, specific drivers as, you know, pathways to innovations that are going to actually impact what priorities are looking like on the security landscape. So what I wanted to kind of talk about with you was actually you know, out of all of those drivers, there's the application of economy of things coming out. And so I'm curious, you know, from your standpoint, have you seen economy of things coming up in conversation now, for example, with Vodafone? Yeah. So I think, yeah, back, background. So stepping back for probably 2013, 2014, when they first started integrating SIM cards into cars. And, um, you yeah, know, this is something that I was actively involved in the whole machine-to-machine basics started to come into play. Since 2017, every single new vehicle has has the telematics components, which has, surprise, surprise, SIM cards at the heart of it. So mobile communications have connected with automotive, and that's a crucially important facet. When we had uh, issues in 2014, 2013, 2014, with the likelihood of SIM cards being uh, able to be attacked because of the way they have been designed and built, suddenly we had a, an entirely new landscape for an attack vector that no one had thought would, could have even been possible. Now, fast forward 8, 10, 12 years, gosh, it's time's flying when you're having fun. We're now in a situation where, you're right, le- you know, electric vehicles, electric transportation in general, it's no longer just electric cars. It's now electric trucks. It's also thinking about the connectivity between those vehicles and the local government environments in which we will operate. Um, Audi did some great work about a year and a half, year and a half, two years ago, to actually now start integrating their smart systems with the location of the vehicle with the town systems, so they now connect with all the traffic signals. So we're now seeing a, a much bigger ecosystem, if you like, of different things coming into play. So you've got electric vehicles, correct? You've got charging infrastructure. We'll talk about that in a minute because that also ties back to how do you actually generate electricity better? Um, the attack surface between the car and communication and the connections that we're now seeing between the car and its environment. 
exclusively kind of thinking about those things around, hey, you can't just assume that you're worrying about the car on its own anymore. You have to worry about the car. You have to worry about the transport, the, the network transport protocols that are, are used between that vehicle and all the smart cities. It's not the, the car itself that I'm going to worry about directly. It's going to be the broader ecosystem because it's always the challenge of a bad guy will look for the easiest entry point and then they'll go lateral wherever they can. Historically, most um, you know, most cities, most towns, most corporations, most small corporations don't tend to have the budget to look at cyber. So as we start creating smart cities and we start connecting EVs into smart cities, we're going to start seeing more challenges potentially with how those those connections occur. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think from that standpoint, Jason, maybe the feedback on it, is this something that like you said, you're kind of seeing grow at a more expedited rate. Is that what's happening now, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think the, if you look at, well, I'm, a, I'm a cynic, right? And I'm Scottish, so by definition, we're immediately cynical of everything. But if you start seeing governments start actually making statements like, we're going to phase out so the internal combustion engine from manufacturing, you're no longer going to be able to buy them by 2030, which I think is the UK's current plan, that all, all vehicles in the UK from 2030 have to be electric or hybrid. You're not going to have the, the luxury and option. Governments tend to be slow on the uptake, right? It's normally innovation occurs in other places, not governments. Governments tend to come around after the fact and say, oh, we should do that now. Everyone else is doing it. Maybe we should do it too. So you're going to see some of that coming into play. And I think if you look at the other thing that's kind of the, the, the redheaded stepchild, if you like, um, that's coming up at the moment, because of the nature of conflict and the impacts on supply chain, what we're now seeing is with with gas price shocks hitting the entire economy, suddenly people who didn't think about EVs, and we'll talk about the, some of the challenges of EVs in a minute, but people didn't think about EVs three, four, five years ago are now actively considering it. And if you look at where most of the motor manufacturers are right now, they're all generating EVs as an option. I think one of the biggest landmark, landmark changes was in 2018 when Ford announced the F-150 Lightning. Um, everyone thought, hang on a minute, that's Ford announcing they're going to make an electric truck. And everyone thought it was a bit of a, no, okay, it's, it'll, it'll never get off the design boards because, you know, truck owners and Brad, I'm looking at you directly on this one. Um, and as a truck owner too, I had the same sense, um, you know, I want to be able to go and fill up my truck and be comfortable. Creating an electric truck feels like, it certainly felt at the time, very ambitious. Now you fast forward two years. What we're now seeing is that you know 2019, 2020, the GM guys started announcing their their Hummer EV. We're now seeing that everybody, all the major manufacturers, are predicting a significant surge in electric vehicles. That leads to two things, and I think it's going to be accelerated by our current political situation because whether you like it or not, the politics of war are impacting the politics of the economy and the environment in which we're living. So. When you suddenly start seeing a surge in prices that you can't control, I had a conversation with someone this morning, literally this morning, who drives his truck 40 miles to work every day. He's now being cautious as to how often he drives it. You're changing behaviors. That's actually more interesting in some respects than all the government, you know, government-driven discussions around we need to be greener, we need to do this is an environmental concern. You know, go back to you know, 2010, 29, 2009, Toyota's Prius was predicated on, we want to be green. We want to do better for the, pilot, for the planet. Ironically, Toyota is one of the biggest providers of hybrid vehicles, but their EVs are behind the curve. 
not because they didn't want to do it, but because they didn't see demand. Now, demand is now there, and that demand is coming to a large degree from a ton of different sources, but the latest and greatest challenge, I think, is more significant because of the way people are operating. People are now starting to say, well, hang on a minute, if I'm only getting 20 miles a gallon, and it's going to cost me almost $4 a gallon, or $4 or $5 or $7, and I have no control over the prices, and if you look at the price, it's funny, if you, if you look at the commodity pricing structure, what you tend to see is that prices go up super quickly, but come down super slowly. And there, there is historical evidence to, to point to the fact that there are a number of reasons behind it. You do spot forward futures on, on pricing and all that good stuff. And crude is, you know, is bought in advance to a large degree. But what we've seen is we've gone from the pandemic year where we had 2020, gas was $1.99, etc. now sitting at $4.00. That's a doubling, and it's exponentially impacting people's ability. So you're definitely going to see that surge. The challenge now comes in, which is as we change, as buyers are changing their behavioral habits, and having moved to near to Austin, there are a lot more EVs in the Austin area than there are in the Houston area, just by virtue of the nature of the, the, the economy and the culture that's here, I suspect. But you're going to see a much larger drive towards it because it's now become mainstream. Teslas are cool. People like the idea of it. It's no longer, you know, the strange people that, that, you know, don't eat meat or don't eat, you know, it's no longer designed as a niche. It's now a mainstream product. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. And I feel like Brad has some insight into maybe North Dakota's amount of automotive uh, transformation, I guess. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do have some facts, um, if anybody's interested. Uh, so I was doing some research on the one, the total number of charging stations that exist in the U.S. It's not a large amount, comparatively. Uh, but as I was digging into where do these charging stations live, a shocking statistic I found was that North Dakota actually has the highest number of charging points or charging ports uh, per electric vehicle registered in the state. They have something like 22.4 charging ports per electric vehicle. Now you contrast that to the number one in the lowest uh, distribution is New Jersey. They have 2.3 charging ports uh, per electronic vehicle or electric vehicle. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see where these waves of charging stations are going in because uh, it's not in population dense areas, right? It's in areas that uh, seem to have the larger uptick in adoption for whatever purpose. I would never have picked North Dakota or uh, a state in the north. Like, Jason, we're from Texas. Things are big in Texas. Long That's distances true. to drive, right? If you're stuck in the middle of a freeway going from Houston to Austin or Dallas in an electric vehicle, I don't even know where I would charge. Right? Yeah. Let alone if I run out of a charge halfway through, where do I, where's the tow truck <laughs> going to take me? San Antonio? I, I don't know. Right. So when yeah. you get to these big states that have wide, like large distances between metropolitan areas, it, it I was shocked to see that North Dakota has the highest number of charging ports. Right. I would have expected something like a New York City or a California, somewhere in California to, to be far up the list, but they didn't even make the top five. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious that you've raised something which I think is really interesting that the, the nature of one of the barriers to adoption in, the, in electric vehicles has historically been around range. 
And I think what we're seeing over the last three to five years is that the technology is improving dramatically. I mean, we won't talk about the resource impacts and whether or not it's carbon neutral or not to, to buy an EV at this point. It's kind of a debatable challenge, I guess. Um, but what's interesting, I guess, is when you look at the, the nature of range anxiety has been the biggest barrier to adoption. That range anxiety normally sits around the 350 mile mark. We're now seeing electric vehicles that can do 400. Um, Ram just came out with their, their their marketing, I guess, on what they're anticipating the, the new electric Ram 1500 to look like in 2023-24, uh, and that's going to have a range of 500 miles. Most people will be comfortable with a range of north of 350 miles, and that's where we're all starting to go. But to your point, I'm, I'd love to know what's driving that statistic. Is there something unique about North Dakota in the sense of how they fund it? Or in the way that they're approaching it, that's different, say, to Texas, where you know it is very much a, a different thing. I'm curious also who's in the top five. Yeah, so the you know I'm going to correct my own data here, right? So North Dakota has uh, 220 registered electric vehicles as of I believe 2021, and they have 139 public charging ports. So we'll consider that to be like a gas station, but for electric charging, uh, with the number of plugs per electric electric charging station being variable so that they actually have 63.2 charging outlets per electric vehicle interesting but again it's only 200 vehicles in the whole state 220 vehicles right whereas you contrast new jersey where they've got 30,000 electric vehicles and they do have significantly more charging ports charging stations of they have just north of 2,000 charging stations Right, but now you're in that a problem of scale, mm-hmm. right? Because places that are congested, like New Jersey, where do you put an electric charging station? You can't displace oil and gas and and traditional uh, fuel charging or fuel uh, fuel stations because you still have there are 238 million cars on the American roads, right? You still have to charge all of those cars or fuel all of those cars. Yeah. So sure. you cannot, you can't just re- do a swap one for one, right? So I think that's why states like North Dakota and the others that are in the top three is Wyoming and Mississippi. Funnily enough, they have a, a larger, a good number of uh, charging stations, uh, but they've got more, more real estate, right? They have more opportunities to put in charging stations. Uh, I think Houston could do very well. We have obviously lots of land. We're very sprawling, lots of places to stick. We could do more uh, for electric charging. And I have seen more pop-ups, uh, but I find that despair to be to be very interesting. I think you're right. I think there's another thing that, that there's another trend starting to emerge, which I think is also kind of interesting in this space. Um, what we're seeing is with the traditional oil and gas players like BP, it's a good example. <clears throat> BP procured in the UK the largest provider of electric charging stations. So they are now, they've shifted their focus, and it's kind of not so much a cyber implication, but it probably does have cyber implications because it's going to run the same infrastructure. And it is operational technology to this day, to, to a significant degree, um, just not as complicated as a refinery, right? There is a, there's, a, there's a gradual shift, I think, and it's probably going to accelerate, and I'm not sure what the tipping point is yet, that power utility companies and traditional you know, petrochemical providers are actually shifting and blurring the lines. 
it makes sense for BP to get into the renewable space. They're, we're seeing it in pretty much all of the oil majors now. They're all starting to diversify their footprint because they recognise that there is a surge away from traditional oil and gas consumption. It's going to reform in different ways, I suspect, and I think it's going to take longer than people anticipate. But the reality is that it's an industry that will probably need to shift its focus and do something different. And that's why I suspect to a significant degree that you're seeing the acquisitions that you are. So you're seeing midstream operators are starting to consider, well, can we leverage our pipelines to act as transmission conduits in other countries, not in the US, but in other countries? So in Europe, um, there's a there's a kind of a challenge around, I did it, I think they've done it in France, so they're looking at it in France at the moment, where they're having a discussion about, well, can we leverage Angie, who is the largest energy provider, can they leverage their transmission? How do they connect the transmission more effectively to enable charging to occur? Because to your point, Brad, it's not just a case of, okay, we just got to put some stations in and we're done. You've got to consider the amount of energy that's going to need to be created to actually allow these these vehicles to be charged, especially when you start thinking about you know, 250 million vehicles. And it's not like filling up a tank of petrol. Gas, sorry about that. Um, you know, you can do, you can get, yeah, 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 I'm always going to do that. Sorry, my bad. Um, but you can't, you go to, you go to a, a gas station and you put the nozzle in, you stand there for three or four minutes and you're done. EV charging is 30 minutes minimum, 25, 30 minutes. And that means that you're going to need more capacity in more locations. And Brad, to your point, in, in high high dense locations, that's going to be hard. How are you going to do it? Well, okay, you're going to, you're going to do more home charging. You're going to increase range. But ultimately, the infrastructure needs to be built, designed, and operated. And what I suspect and what I'm concerned about to a degree is that you're going to see existing energy players migrate into this space. So some of the, the habits that they have, whether they're power and distribution organizations that do this today, or they're oil and gas that are moving into renewables and into energy, will move into this space too. It's going to be worthwhile. It's going to be it's going to be economically viable, which goes back to Chrissy's original question, having looked at the Biden administration and the fact that they are looking to promote the provision of the infrastructure now because there's enough demand for it. How does that all work? How is it all going to connect? And where, do, you know, where are the risks that we see? So one of the risks that's kind of obvious in my mind, and maybe we can debate it a little bit, if you look at where especially in the in the uh, in the petrochemical space as they're moving into electrical production and they're moving into the provision of electrical charging stations as part of their their estate right they have a large retail estate most of the oil and gas majors have a large retail estate it would make logical sense for them to convert some of that estate space into charging that would be a sensible thing to do you think right i don't know now here's to- where here's where i want to i want to interject because there's you brought up something really fascinating about the difference in timing needs to yeah. fill up your car with gas versus charge an electric vehicle. Now, when I look at where have I seen charging stations and what do I see at fuel pumps, right? Everything around a gas station is almost designed to be quick, right? Mm-hmm. They're called stop and goes, quick shops. And in, you know, everything is about getting in and out, getting the essentials that you need. And they're kind of isolated, like on corners, very convenient. Yeah. EV charging stations, they're in shopping mall parking lots. They're in retail strip centers, places where you're going to have to plug in and they want you to go have an experience because you have 30 minutes to wait. And And that's a whole new strategy, right? That's a whole design strategy, retail strategy, marketing strategy of we can't just, maybe we can convert some of our gas stations into electric vehicle charging stations. 
right? I, I, there's a restaurant my family loves to go to. Um, it's called Good Company Barbecue and, and uh, Cantina. Really Great. good food. Big shout out to Good Company. Uh, and they are a standalone building nestled behind a, a, a gas station. So having food options, good sit-down food options, family-friendly, is a good place to put an electric vehicle charging station, right? They could convert that to a charging station because there's a place for the people, for the family to go, to go get a good meal, have some chips and queso, have a margarita, right? But the, conversely, if I go to the, the gas station that's closest to me, the nearest thing is a, is a grocery store, right? And I'm not going to go kill time in a grocery store because I'll weigh 500 pounds, eating all the <laughs> samples and buying brownies. And like, that's what I would do. Right. So I think there's a, a big shift in just the, yeah. Yeah. How do you build the experience around it to make electric vehicle charging more palatable and more consumable rather than just a, I can do it fast yeah. like with gas. So I think it's, there's, it's a really great question. We can definitely dive into it. I think there's another or in that, which is if you look at vehicle charging time, because that's the crux of this human beings, over the last 50 or 60 years have seen, and there's a, there's a component in the human brain that basically measures, it links into serotonin levels, measures the amount of patience you have, right? And if you look at technology, if electric vehicles had been designed and built and deployed in the 1970s, when the last major oil crisis happened, right, um, people were more patient. Human beings would tend to spend more time doing things. There was no, not so much pressure around, I have to be in, I have to be out, it has to be quick. Over the course of the last 50, 60, 70 years, what you've seen is technology has enabled us to reduce our time. And I'll give you a really simple example. When I was growing up a long time ago in Scotland, we had one phone in the house and it wasn't mobile. It was literally a fixed line thing. Um, yes, they really did exist. People did have fixed lines in their homes because they didn't have anything else. And if you, if I call one of my friends to go out and do something and I was you know, six, seven years old, I would stand on the phone five or six minutes waiting for him to come and answer. And the reason for that was because I knew he was probably in the garden. He might have been in his bedroom. His mum may have the washing machine on so that no one heard the phone. And you wait and you'd wait and you wait. And successive technology generations have occurred over the course of the last 50 years that have reduced that expectation. If you pick up your mobile phone today, and just a general question, how long will you wait once you've sent a text message to somebody before you want to do a follow-up? Five seconds? Ten seconds? 15 seconds. If, if it's me, the text message is all you get, right? Like yeah. that's, that's my attention span. I don't have, if I send you a text message, you're not going to get a phone call because I've already moved on to the next thing. Right. Exactly. But the point is it's slices of time. And what you've seen is people's attention spans have reduced, reduced and reduced. So people become used to an instant culture. It's an instant gratification culture. I send you a text message. Hey, Christy, why didn't you respond to my message yet? I sent it to you like 15 seconds ago. People have an expectation of a technology intervention. Now, what we're seeing with electric vehicles and what we're seeing with battery manufacturers and the R&D side of things, which is why it's also super fascinating, is you're seeing an improved design that's going to reduce the amount of time it takes to charge. And I think there's a, there's a tipping point barrier of around seven to ten minutes that people will actually spend if they can get their car charged. And there were lots of other kind of full-start technology discussions around swapping out batteries. There was a standard that was generated, I think, in the European Union around actually saying, don't charge the vehicle, charge the battery. And you just have a standard battery which you could slot, slot in and slot out, and it would be a much easier mechanism. For whatever reason, it never actually took off. But wouldn't it have been interesting if that had done? Because then you don't, you don't need any of the experience. But I think you're down to the question around time. 
time is everything right we're all very very busy people we all have a lot of things on our plate and we're always constantly looking at the next thing to your point brad if you send me a text message i'm not expecting a phone call but i'd be lucky if i get two text messages in a day right it's the materiality of that that's now coming into play you're right at the moment it's experience how do i generate experience but if i can find the happy medium that someone's going to sit in their car for seven to ten minutes and charge the vehicle and have enough chance to go where they want to go i don't need to worry where it is and that's where i think we're going to get to Stay tuned for our next episode with Jason exploring the cybersecurity risks of having connected electric vehicles on the road.